Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined with the editors of the book Tough Cases, Judges Tell the Stories of Some of the Hardest Decisions They've Ever Made. And my guests who edited this volume are Judge Russell Cannon, Judge Gregory Mize, and Judge Frederick Weisberg. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Now, I would love to start off with Judge Cannon, who I believe had the initial idea for this book. Judge Cannon, could you please speak a little bit about what made you develop this idea and how it began to come together? Well, it was actually a group effort. Uh, Fred Weisberg and another colleague, Jeb Bosberg, and I were having dinner at our favorite Italian restaurant in in Washington, D.C., and as the conversation often goes, we were talking about some of our toughest cases. And during that conversation, we came to realize that there's very little literature out there by trial judges uh, about their toughest cases and, and what made them so tough. There's a lot of academic literature. There's a lot of literature by appellate judges, but very little that comes from uh, the trial judges uh, that would give the general public a, a ringside seat on how hard decisions are made. And we tossed around the idea of perhaps writing a chapter a piece and seeing if there would be any interest in that. We thought it would be great value to the public as well as perhaps of great value to uh, judges and lawyers who oftentimes struggle to see the challenges that the trial judges have. Not too long afterwards, I was playing tennis with my uh, tennis buddy Greg Mize, and we got to talking about tough cases, and he told me this amazing story that I had never heard before. And Greg joined us, and we all decided to to write a chapter and see where it went. And we wrote our chapters, we we passed them around, and we we thought they were pretty good, and that they had some meaning and and some value. And so our next step was to go try to find a publisher. We had absolutely no idea how to do this. We had no insight at all into the publishing world. Uh, so we called uh, some friends in academia and some journalists who had published books to give us advice. And we got some really good advice from a number of people, including uh, Professor Angela Davis from the Washington College of Law at American University. And she read our chapters and was very enthusiastic about it. And she suggested and said that she thought she had the uh, the perfect publisher in mind which is the New Press, based in New York. The New Press is a, a nonprofit publication. Uh, if you think uh, more akin to PBS or NPR, they publish books in the public interest on any number of areas, including a number of legal issues. Professor Davis sent our three chapters to their executive editor, Diane Wachtel, and just like that, Diane uh, sent us an email saying she loved our chapters and wanted to talk. So we talked with uh, Diane, and she asked us about our vision for the book. And uh, our original vision was to recruit judges from our court, the D.C. Washington, D.C. Superior Court, uh, to present a story from the live, gritty, urban D.C. Superior Court, which has a million stories in them. And Diane very quickly thought that our book would have much more appeal and would be much more dynamic if we recruited judges around the country. And we readily agreed to that. So between the three of us, we recruited judges uh, all over the country, some judges we knew personally, 
some we had heard about, some were referred by other judges, and ultimately we uh, recruited judges from uh, Texas, California, Washington State, Minnesota, uh, Michigan, uh, New York City, uh, of course, Washington, D.C., and Florida. And we also sought to get a, a diverse set of judges with diverse backgrounds and cases. So we have cases in criminal cases, civil cases, probate cases, family court cases, uh, and a wide variety of cases. And why these cases were difficult and tough for us. And uh, everyone contributed a chapter. Fred and Greg and I edited, did the first edit, but then the professionals at the New Press did editing as well. And it all came together quite nicely, and we had our 13 chapters. And about three weeks ago, we all got together for a book launch in New York City at a, at a prominent law firm for our book launch. The Squire Patton Boggs uh, was kind enough to host us, and we had, a, we had a very nice crowd, and 10 of our 13 judges came for the book launch, and we've been proceeding after that. And we've got some judges, some cases that are well-known nationally, even internationally. Terry's judge by Judge George Greer tells the story of the, uh, uh, the heartbreaking case of the Terry Schiavo case where he had to decide amidst um, great pressure whether or not to terminate life support on, a, on Terry Schiavo, who had been in a persistent vegetative state for many years. We had the Elian Gonzalez case where Judge Jennifer Bailey had to make the very difficult decision regarding the custody of Elian Gonzalez, who had come to the United States with his mother, who drowned, coming over. And then Judge Reggie Walton, a federal judge on, in Washington, D.C., had the Scooter Liberty trial and all the political pressures that he had to undergo with that as well. A lot of our cases are not famous cases, though, but really go into the day-to-day life of a trial judge as as we do our best to do justice and, and make the right calls under oftentimes very difficult circumstances. And Judge Weisberg, I wanted to speak to you about your chapter in this book. You had one of the cases that I believe is better known, at least I had heard of it. This is the Benita Jacks case. It's very tragic. But can you talk a little bit about that case and what made it a tough case for you, one of your harder cases that really still sticks with you? Uh, sure. In our court, assignments change from the civil division to the criminal division to the family court, and cases are assigned within those assignments at random. And so, you know, I could come in one day and find this case, and it's just sort of dropped in your lap, and you have to roll with it. The case begins, oddly enough, with a, a, a routine um, eviction from a house where the tenant had failed to pay rent, and the landlord went to court and got a, a judgment to have the tenant evicted. But when they went to the house, they found on a January day in 2008, a woman living there with no heat, no hot water, no electricity, uh, and with the bodies of her four daughters uh, in upstairs bedrooms who had been dead, it turns out, we later learned, at least three months and possibly as long as six months based on the forensic evidence that was later developed. Uh, so she was arrested and charged, of course, with the homicide. And the case came to me then as a criminal case, not, a, not as a housing court case. And the reason I chose to write about it, uh, well, first of all, there were, there were some very difficult and tricky uh, evidentiary issues because the bodies were so decomposed when they were discovered that there were very few clues uh, that would enable the uh, 
pathologist to determine the cause and manner of death. I mean, normally if you have a body that has been discovered in a homicide, a good pathologist can examine the wound, the entry and exit wounds, blunt force trauma wounds, stab wounds, uh, and come to a pretty clear determination uh, that it was either homicide or not and, and what caused the death. In this case, uh, these bodies were uh, extremely decomposed. Witnesses described them as skeletal remains. So there was very little soft tissue from which the experts could determine what was going to be important in determining the guilt or innocence of, of the person charged uh, as to the cause and manner of death. That is not why I chose to write about the case, but it was a pretty grisly fact pattern that made the case difficult in that sense. I chose to write about it because... More than those issues, the difficulty of the case for me was assessing the mental health of the accused, both in terms of her competency to stand trial and as to whether or not she was going to present a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. And as I wrestled with those issues throughout the pretrial stages of the case, I came to determine that the legal principles that I had to operate under and the facts that I developed from the record as to her mental condition uh, required me, I ultimately felt, to make a decision that I think most people would find counterintuitive and maybe even at least looking at it for the first time, conclude was incorrect. Uh, I found her competent to stand trial initially, and that was not even uh, particularly difficult. She was examined by a psychiatrist. She understood exactly what she was charged with. She understood the proceedings she was going through, and she was able to cooperate with her lawyer's uh, at every stage of the case in preparing a defense. But after she was found competent, she instructed her lawyers not to raise a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity, which was against their advice. And they spent the next several months trying to persuade me that while she may be competent to stand trial generally, she was not competent uh, to waive the insanity defense. And I should impose the defense whether she wanted me to or not. That's where the case became, for me, quite difficult because she uh, was very articulate in expressing her wishes. And, in fact, I included in my chapter several pages of the actual transcript of the proceedings where I'm engaging in this colloquy with her as to why she's making the decision not to raise the insanity defense. And when we first submitted it to the uh, publisher, they said, you know, your, your chapter is fairly long. Is, is, is all this transcript really necessary? And I, I took a firm position that it not only is necessary, it's, just, it's essential to the understanding of the, of the dilemma in the case because one reads it and, and most people would come away thinking, well, you would assume she was mentally ill because uh, who else would do something like this if she did it? But she certainly sounds perfectly sane and rational in those exchanges with the judge. And so I wanted to give the reader enough of the actual flavor of the case and the actual interchanges I had with the defendant so they could, uh, the reader could make his or her own decision as to whether or not I should have accepted a waiver of the insanity defense and whether I was correct in doing so. But at least if they disagree with me, they'd be forced to argue against the record that I was dealing with and explain why the law didn't require me to do what I did. And the reason I chose to write about it is exactly that. Lots of times we're forced as trial judges to make decisions that we wouldn't personally, we're not personally comfortable with, we don't personally agree with perhaps, but 
that's part of the rule of law. If the facts are clear and, and the law is clear, a trial judge follows the law whether wherever it leads, and, and uh, it sometimes leads to places that you might prefer otherwise. And Judge Cannon, this really reminds me very much about the dilemma that you face. Now, the case that you describe in your chapter is not a well-known case. And one thing I found really interesting as a reader was obviously I was interested in the cases that I had heard about and the thinking of the judge you know, behind those cases. But I really found it intriguing and very touching to hear about these lesser-known cases that nonetheless have stuck with these judges for so long. Can you talk a little bit about how you face this dilemma of what the law says and what you felt justice demanded or what the right thing to do would be? Uh, my chapter is called Rough Justice and really grapples with the age-old issue in philosophy, life, and the law is do the ends justify the means if the ends are just? And I was faced with a case where a defendant who was 40 years old, had no criminal history, was a working man, had worked at the local Safeway for many, many years, and was the single father of two teenage children, was charged with essentially attempted murder and related offenses. One of those charges called for a mandatory five years in prison, a sentence that I had no power or authority to change if he was found guilty. We received a note from the jury indicating that they were planning to find him guilty of that offense, which would call for the five years mandatory sentence. And they were just simply asking for advice on how to go about doing that in a mechanical way. I was very troubled by this because had I tried the case by myself without a jury, I would have easily found him not guilty. And I was very surprised that the jury was going to make this decision a decision that I thought was profoundly wrong, but I had no authority or power to prevent them from doing that and no authority under these circumstances to dismiss or throw the case out. I would have to accept the verdict and impose the sentence. At that time, I was very troubled by this. I was troubled by the defendant's fate and his two daughters as well. And I ultimately suggested to the lawyers that Perhaps they would want to consider having the defendant plead guilty to a charge that did not call for a mandatory sentence. Now, keep this in mind, the defendant had testified at his trial and said whatever happened, happened in self-defense, a self-defense I easily would have accepted. But this would require him to essentially plead guilty to a crime of related to attempted murder. And uh, after much uh, heart-wrenching decision-making by the defendant and his two teenage daughters, he finally decided to do it. We were literally in the courtroom. The defendant and his daughters were, were crying when we heard the knock uh, on the door by the jury room where the jury indicated that they had, in fact, reached a verdict. We didn't know what the verdict was, but that they had reached the verdict. So it was my job then to take a plea of guilty. And a plea of guilty for a criminal judge is a very common event. We do it all the time. And we have to ask a number of questions to make sure that the defendant is intelligently and knowingly and voluntarily entering a plea without any uh, improper inducements or coercion from anyone, including the judge. And as we're going through this process, a very emotional process from the defendant's viewpoint, 
I then had to ask a question of him, a standard question. Has anyone promised you what sentence you're going to receive? Because judges are not allowed, at least in the federal system, which our court follows, to promise defendants what they're going to receive, because that could coerce them or induce them to plead guilty to something that they did not do. And as I'm saying these words, it hit me hard that I had not expressly promised the defendant what I was going to give him, but I had impliedly expressed that through his lawyer, and he clearly understood that I felt a five-year sentence would not be appropriate. And had I changed my mind and sentenced him to five years or more, he would have rightly felt that he'd been double-crossed. So at this point, I was challenged with this notion of, am I going to strictly follow the law or skirt the law, maybe even bend the law in order to achieve justice. This was something the defendant wanted to do. His lawyer wanted him to do it. I wanted him to do it. And even the prosecutor wanted him to do it. Everybody wanted the same thing, but it was, in my view, skirting or bending the law. So do the ends justify the means if the ends are just? Well, in the heat of the moment, I accepted the plea. We went forward and the case was then postponed for his sentencing, where, in reality, he was not going to go to prison. Sitting back in my office, sitting back in chambers, my courtroom clerk came in about 15 minutes later and delivered to me the verdict form that we had never accepted. And the verdict form actually showed that the jury was going to find him not guilty of all charges. And, you know, it was quite, a, uh, quite an event for myself and for the defendant and his lawyers, for everyone. Uh, his lawyer then came back several days later, moved in court to withdraw his guilty plea, essentially saying that I, out of the best of motives and trying to do justice, had essentially coerced her client into pleading guilty. And I had to agree with her. I did that. And so I withdrew the, I allowed the defendant to withdraw his guilty plea. We were back to square one. The prosecution had the right to bring the trial again, we'd go through the whole process again, but then the prosecutor said that the government moved to dismiss the case. So the case was dismissed, and it was all over for the defendant. So in the end, you know, was justice done? Yes, there was some rough justice was done. I think what ultimately should have happened finally happened, but did it have a cost, a cost of my fidelity to the law? I never in my career knowingly winked at the law or tried to go around it, but I did in that case, and I was left to ponder, would I ever do such a thing again? And I don't think I would. Judge Mize, I'd like to pick up on something that I really hear coming through with Judge Cannon's story, which is we as lay people get to read judicial opinions. We get to see you lay out the logic behind a decision, but we are not necessarily privy to the kinds of emotions you experience or the kind of human fallout that you experience as a judge deciding some of these very tough cases. And in your chapter particularly, it's Brave Jenny for any listeners who may already have a copy of Tough Cases. I really got that feeling and was able to find out from you more of the human element behind this as you as a person are having to wrestle with these decisions that can impact a child's life, a family's life. Could you talk a little bit about why the Brave Jenny case was your tough case, the one you chose to write about? 
Yes. Um, as Judge Weisberg said, we judges uh, receive cases. We don't create our docket. And uh, while I was sitting in the family division of our general jurisdiction court, the case of Brave Jenny was on my docket, and it involved a charge against a woman, a mother, who was alleged to have abused her six-year-old child when Jenny was hospitalized at Children's National Medical Center here in Washington, D.C. And uh, before filing, uh, Jenny was hospitalized for almost four months, and during the hospitalization, she would continually spike a high fever, and with administration of care at the hospital, it would go down, the fever would go down, but shortly after that success, it would spike back up. And this went on for months, and the doctors were perplexed. They started to talk to other medical centers around the country, and they pieced together the following, which came out in five days of evidence during the trial, that the mother probably suffered from Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is a rare uh, psychological disorder where typically a parent does harm to his or her child in order to uh, make the child more dependent and closer to the parent. The evidence showed that, to support that, that the mother who was allowed, like all parents in the hospital, to stay overnight with their child of tender years. So the mother was staying overnight, uh, night after night. She was allowed to help nurses uh, administer care, including helping with the administration of IV fluids. And the doctors noticed that there was an aquarium close at hand to the child's room, and they pieced together that the mother probably took aquarium water and injected it into the IV fluids and hence into Jenny. And hence the fever would go up. So a charge was, it was brought to the attention of the government. A charge of abuse and neglect was made against the mother. The case comes before me. The evidence included expert testimony for both the child, the government, and the mother. And at the end of it, it was a rather, um, it was not a, relatively not a difficult decision. I found that the mother did indeed suffer from Munchausen syndrome by proxy and that she abused her child. That was not what made this the toughest case, though. Under our law, as is the case in cities and states around the country, in a child abuse and neglect case, the court uh, must take efforts to reunite the child with the parent if it's in the child's best interest, and to monitor the welfare of the child while the case is still open. And so Jenny, being so young, and this being uh, such a complex case, I had review hearings about every three months for the first year after I rendered my verdict. And I ruled that the child cannot be with the mother. She could only be with her father. And by the way, the father and the mother were in divorce proceedings. And so that was not a surprise to anyone that it would be one or the other. And I allowed supervised visitation in the beginning. The mother could visit with Jenny uh, with a social worker present. And at the first visit, the mother gives a candy bar to Jenny. 
and this is an absolute no-no. And with that, it was recommended to me, and I agreed that there should be no face-to-face contact until the mother successfully demonstrates she's dealing with her Munchausen syndrome, getting treatment for it, and she admits that she is the cause of Jenny's uh, abuse. Well, fast forward, it took four months of review hearings. There must have been a dozen, 20 review hearings. And at each review hearing over the course of the years, the mother was not making an admission. In fact, she was not participating uh, fully in therapy. She was also falling apart. With each review hearing, she looked a little worse, a little more distraught and unhealthy. At about the four-year mark, still mother and child in these review hearings, I would not let them have face-to-face contact, only letters, because the experts, the treating doctors for both Jenny and her mother said, there's been no change in the mother, and Jenny is doing just great. I, in fact, in order to understand Jenny better, met with her in my chambers in the company of my law clerk three times, and she was a delightful, spunky cool little kid, and she reminded me of a character in a child's book that I read to my daughters called Brave Jenny, where this uh, character in the book does uh, great things, travels through a snowstorm to accomplish a task for her mother. And I gave the book to Jenny, and she was very thankful. She wrote a little note to me thanking me thereafter. The case had to close at about the four-year mark because Government ran out of money to treat the mother for Munchausen's. In addition, the mother, uh, at a, one of the very last review hearings, said that she didn't do any harm to Jenny. As a matter of fact, she and Jenny had a little secret, and the secret was that Jenny injected the fluids into herself. It was a very despairing moment. I closed the case and left supervision from that point on with the judge who supervised the divorce case in our neighboring state of Maryland where the parents used to live. At about two or three months after I closed the case, I'm sitting down reading the Washington Post on a Saturday afternoon, and I see that a woman has jumped overboard in the middle of the night in the Chesapeake Bay, and she's missing. I had this feeling, because this case haunted me for those months, Did I do the right thing keeping mother and child separate? The father of daughters, one of whom is the same age as Jenny, approaching puberty at that point, how could could a mother and a daughter stay apart completely at my direction? It burdened me. On Sunday morning, back to the newspaper story, I see that the mother, the woman who jumped overboard, was indeed identified, and it was, I could tell from the name, Jenny's mother. I was heartbroken. I was increasingly concerned about whether I caused such despair in this woman that she committed suicide. And I kept that kind of uh, burden. And I wrote my story uh, because I wanted to demonstrate to uh, the general public uh, that the limit of the judicial office, and some things the law doesn't take care of, and knowing what the facts were is not enough. And before I could write my story, I wanted to get the permission of Jenny and her father to write the story. 
and I did get that permission talking to the father and then Jenny. I find out after I placed the call to the father, Jenny had asked the father, she's now in her 30s at this point in time, asked the father, could I see all of the court papers that you saved, Dad? Because I want to learn more about the judge and the doctor who saved my life. And I, of course, got the permission. And I wanted, and Jenny called me on the telephone. I said, I would love to see you. We met at the National Gallery of Art. We saw each other for the first time in over 20 years. We hugged. We were in tears. She is a beautiful person who is a dental hygienist in suburban Maryland. Her clients include persons of low income. She's a real contributor to our community. And she wrote an email to me after our meeting at the National Gallery where she thanked me and she said, uh, she, she was brave, Jenny. She, she was brave, Jenny. She said, I'm not feeling sorry for myself. I must move on and do good. So that's why, that's why this, this story was written. It, it just shows the limits of the legal situation and the trauma that can come to a judge personally in trying to do the right thing. And Judge Mize, I'd like to follow up on that with you because certainly as a profession, the legal profession really suffers with how to deal with these pressures. And some turn to um, substance abuse. Some fortunately receive you know, mental health support or, or do things for their own well-being. Are there recommendations that you have, Judge Mize or Judge Weisberg or Judge Cannon, about how judges and lawyers can deal with the aftermath of these tough cases. Judge Mize, if you'd speak to that first. I, I find that my family and my community are my, my anchor. And if it weren't for the love that I have with my children and my wife and all of my neighbors, I couldn't handle these kinds of things alone. So community is very important. And that community involves also fellow judges who we each have at least one colleague, I think, who uh, walks the rough road with us and helps us uh, get through some real tough decisions and times. Judge Weisberg? I figured out pretty early after I was appointed, and I was quite young when I started as a judge, that you cannot do a good job as a trial judge unless you have a degree of sympathy and empathy uh, for the people who appear before you on both sides of every case, on all sides of every case. And that takes a toll on you because the difference between being a trial judge and an appellate judge, including a Supreme Court justice, is that the latter two categories uh, do not deal directly with the people. They decide cases on a, what's sometimes referred to as a cold record that's made in the trial court and they rarely even see the people who are involved in the cases. But in the trial court, you're staring at the people who are going to be affected by your decisions, and you can't help but have normal human reactions to them of all different kinds, anger, sympathy, whatever the case uh, may suggest. But I also realized pretty early on that if you bleed for every case, you can't do the job either because it takes too much of a toll and you simply have to do the best you can and move on to the next case. So there's, a, at least in my case, and I can really only speak for myself, there's sort of a, a middle ground that you have to find for yourself where you don't lose sight of the human 
impact of your decisions on people's lives, but on the other hand, you don't let it overwhelm you in every single case to the point where you can't function as a judge. But I do feel that you're not going to be a good trial judge if you don't care about the people who are appearing before you, Uh, but you're probably also not going to succeed as a trial judge if you care too much and let it mentally overwhelm you. How about you, Judge Cannon? I would uh, quote our friend and fellow contributor, uh, Judge Elizabeth Gonzalez from the Bronx in New York, and her chapter is called A Quiet Grief, where she also had to deal with with a tragedy. And when we all got together in New York, she spoke very eloquently about uh, the judges in this book and our fellow trial judges everywhere being kindred spirits. And one of the values we hope of the book is that other judges will read it and and realize that we share so much together, and that by talking about it and and sharing it, we can we can help us get through uh, our tough cases. And then speaking of your fellow judges, our listeners are going to be hearing this in December, uh, just in time to buy tough cases. Judges tell the stories of some of the hardest decisions they've ever made for the holiday season. But we are speaking the day after Election Day. Many, many people across the country are soon going to be ascending to the bench. Judge Cannon, what kind of advice would you have for someone who has just arrived on the bench? I'd advise them to read in our book, Every Case is a Tough Case for a New Judge, written by Judge Michelle Ahn of Los Angeles, uh, California. Judge Ahn was a career public defender, handled the most difficult gangland types of criminal cases. She was appointed to the bench by Governor Brown. And her story, her chapter, talks about the difficulty she had in transferring from a zealous advocate to being a judge and deciding each case on its own merits and not as an advocate. And she goes through in a very honest and admirable way the difficulties every judge, I think, has in transferring from being an advocate to a judge and putting aside old habits and old beliefs. I mean, she was faced with a very difficult situation of locking people up, the same people, not the exact people, but the same kinds of folks that she had spent a lifetime defending and how that struck her, and also recognizing the need to be fair to everyone, not only the defendants before them, but the prosecutor and the victims who came to court. So I, I think her story is is a wonderful example of a judge wrestling with the difficulty of transitioning to being a judge. I'd also recommend a, a chapter, Walking with My Ancestors, Tribal Justice for Salmon Running, written by Chief Judge Ali Greenleaf Maldonado of the Little Traverse Bay Band, a tribe of Ottawa Indians in Michigan. And she talks about how using tribal notions of healing to work with an offender, a drug dealer who might otherwise go to prison for many years, but trying to use uh, tribal concepts of healing, some of the same concepts we use in our drug courts and mental health courts to try to receive, uh, achieve restorative justice, to try to actually help some people who appear before us and not necessarily be harsh in sending them to prison. And I'd also recommend, and there's many others, but just picking three, uh, Judge Robert Allstar from Seattle, Washington, he writes, in can an elected judge overrule nearly a million voters and survive, dealing with a situation where he was faced with essentially overruling a, 
a million voters in his state, and he's an elected judge. And it's foolhardy to think that judges who are elected don't think about being reelected and losing their jobs. But his example is, is, a, is a wonderful example of judge using uh, independence and neutral principles and and really being fearlessly courageous to possibly losing his job but doing the right thing. So uh, I think these kinds of chapters show uh, sometimes judges at their very best to try to do justice. Well, if any of my listeners want to pick up tough cases, judges tell the stories of some of the hardest decisions they've ever made, how can they do so? Well, it's available on, on Amazon and in, in most of the larger bookstores around the country. I think it is anyway. And having written this first book together, edited this first book together, do the three of you have any future plans for, for publications? <laughs> Judge Cannon, Judge Mize, Judge Weisberg? That was me sort of giggling. It, uh, it, it was a huge amount of work, much more than I thought it would be, mostly because we knew so little about the process we, uh, we put ourselves into. Uh, I don't know whether I have another book or part of a book in me. I, I certainly enjoyed it. And I've, I thought uh, we had something more useful to say. I wouldn't be opposed to trying to say it. But, but it did strike me as we were writing and editing the book that there are thousands of these stories all over the country. Uh, we just happened to pick these 13. But, you know, you can talk to almost any trial judge, certainly in busy urban trial courts and, and probably in any trial courts, uh, and they will all have a case uh, and come up with it pretty quickly that kept them up at night or, or uh, they found particularly difficult emotionally or, or legally. And so if there's another book to be written, I'm sure there are other people that could write one just as compelling as this and many other people. I would add that uh, I'm very interested in the reaction that we learn, reactions we learn of after this book is out there and more and more people read these stories. Uh, there's already been some feedback from a federal judge in New York City that he or hopes that more judges will write these stories. And uh, we'll see. I, like Fred, am uh, exhausted from this effort. But if this is proven to be a real public service and a, there's a thirst for more, if not us, someone else will take up the charge. And if anyone wanted to get in touch with one of the three of you about feedback they had for tough cases or perhaps ideas they had for future volumes. Is there any way to reach you? Should they go through the new press? I would suggest that they contact the new press. They can go on their, their website and uh, there's a mechanism there somehow to, to get in contact with the editor and, and they can get in contact with us. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've been speaking with Judge Russell Cannon, Judge Greg Mize, and Judge Fred Weisberg to talk about their book, Tough Cases, Judges Tell the Stories of Some of the Hardest Decisions They've Ever Made. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you've read a great book that you'd like us to feature, please email us at books at abajournal.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.